Well, Sam, I don't really know how to begin this week's podcast, but I do know for next week, we have to start with Taylor Swift's Back to December, given that bloody hell we are in December coming up. <laughs> well, why don't we just start it with that? I feel like that's big enough news to start our podcast off. <laughs> and on that note, I suppose it is Saturday, the 27th of November, 2021. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Joining me as always from the other side of the globe is my co-host Sam. How's everything going, Sam? Yeah, it's going it's going well, Churn. I think, um, well, we got a bit of sad news last night when um, the legendary composer Stephen Sondheim passed away at the age of 91. So um, it's been an interesting last 24 hours, but uh, we're ready to go with some more politics. Well, I have to say you stormed the next sentence right out of my mouth because I was going to mention his sad death. What to you was, as a, before we go dive into politics, was his best play as such that you always remember it by? I think my favourite one, um, well, it's a tie between, my favourite musical he wrote was, uh, was Follies because I love the music from Follies and I remember watching it at the National Theatre and just being blown away. But my favourite piece he wrote that I think he'll be most remembered for in the end um, is Sunday in the Park with George because it's such an excellent commentary on art and what it means to be a creative and if you're anybody who's even remotely creative whether it's being an actor or just simply enjoying art or theatre in general that is such a good commentary on what it means to create and to appreciate art so um, for me he had a wonderful ability to capture life's nuances and uh, both of these shows are, are places where you can see that at its full force. Well, capturing life's nuances is something that we will be frankly doing every week in, in many different countries around the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this week is no exception because we're turning our attention to the state of politics in Chile, where it's frankly had a remarkable first round of the presidential elections and parliamentary elections, which took place last Sunday. And it has sent shockwaves throughout the political establishment and indeed the world. So, Sam, a good place to start would be the parties that traditionally govern Chile since the return to democracy after Augusto Pinochet's dictatorship fell. Because, frankly, Sam, they've had a horror show of an election, haven't they? Yeah, they, they really have. Um, it's, we'll be going through to the second round of the presidential election next month, which we'll be talking about extensively throughout this podcast. But unusually, it's going to be a runoff between two candidates from... <laughs> the either end of the political spectrum, the, the extremes of it, because we have um, a far a far left candidate in Boric going against Jose Antonio Cast, who is almost seen as Chile's answer to Donald Trump in terms of his rhetoric and political style. And the traditional parties that provide the presidency, at least since the democratization of Chile in 1990, are nowhere to be seen. And um, yeah, that is an unusual occurrence for Chilean politics for certain. Indeed. And what is unique about this election is that the incumbent president, Sebastian Pinera, has to step down. And in fact, Chilean presidents are entitled to only serve a single four-year term and cannot run for re-election. A bit similar to actually Virginia, actually, where Ralph Northam mm-hmm. couldn't run for re-election despite only being elected in 2014. Do you think, Sam, it's a good idea to have such short terms and therefore such high 
presidential turnovers. I mean, I do understand where the short terms came from, if you look at Chilean history, because often when these things are come about, even in the Virginian case, when we talk about them just having such limited terms there as well, it comes about to try and protect that country from having any long-term potentially authoritarian influence on the country, especially for Chile coming off the back of the um, Pinochet era in Chile, um, which I'm sure we'll be talking about because Jose Antonio Cast has very specific views of that period, which are contrary to most of the other political parties in Chile. But yeah, I do think it's it proves mildly problematic for their politics because with such high turnover, the political life cycle of Chile is so short. So, so presidential candidates are not not necessarily going for long term plans to try and bolster their re-election campaign in four years because they know that they can't run for re-election in four years. It's quite common in Chilean politics, at least recently, for the presidential candidate who was successful once to then run in the next but one cycle. So that that was that was true of Michelle Bachelet. It was true actually of Piñera. Um, this is his second term. Um, but yeah, I do think it makes for a very interesting political cycle because from the moment you take office as president, usually in other countries, you'll be thinking ahead to the next election in some ways. Whereas this time, they're, they're not really thinking about that personally at all. Yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, what's even more remarkable from my point of view is that in 2005, the constitutional referendum reduced, uh, amendment reduced it from a single six-year term to a single four-year term, which made it sound a lot more extreme. I think as well, the nature and something when we're discussing Pinochet's legacy in a little bit later in the podcast that we also have to consider is that there's often a view that Chile's wealth, and it has a lot of mineral wealth and a lot of it's a resource-rich country, has been unfairly distributed. So I think the idea of having such constant presidential turnovers is to prevent one faction in particular from accumulating a lot of wealth and resources that we potentially saw during the Pinochet era, where a lot of it was largely in the hands of a very small group and the military as well. So given such lessons, I actually don't think I'm that surprised about why they've opted for such short terms and such high presidential turnovers. And yes, in a way, you could argue that one of the symptoms of that is that both Michel Bachelet and Sebastian Pinera ran for second terms as such when they were next able to do so as a way to circumvent them. Um, and it'll be, and we'll be talking about both their parties' coalitions in a bit because both of them have suffered big hit, haven't they? Yeah, they have indeed. And I mean, that's one a, a nice place to start when we talk about the other parties because if we look back at recent presidencies, the such titan parties of Chilean politics who provided figures like Michelle Bachelet and the incumbent president um, Piñera, they they are nowhere to be seen in this election, as I said when we began, and neither of them will be contributing candidates to the runoff election in December. And yes, let's start with the Chile Podemos Plus, which represents the um, current political coalition in government. It's a four-party coalition where of whom Sebastian Pinera hails from one of them. It has and over since the restoration of democracy, however only nominated one successful presidential election candidate, that being Sebastian Pinera, who governed Chile from 2010 to 2014, and now is serving second term from 2018 to currently. This time around, 
they have nominated Sebastian Segal, who was social development and family minister under the Pinera administration. And he was beaten to fourth place with only about 13% of the vote. In the parliamentary elections, because which took place concurrently alongside the presidential election, they performed poorly in the chamber, the lower house, the chamber of deputies, finishing, although they finished first with 53 seats, they lost 19 seats, which is quite a lot. And although in, they had slightly better news in the Senate, where they will have 22 seats and they will control the upper chamber. So Sam, before we talk about Sebastian Segal, let's talk a bit about Sebastian Pinera. Two terms, has his second term been any different from his first? I mean, it has been different from his first in many ways. And I think primarily it's been different from the first in that it's been significantly worse than the first in terms of Sebastian Pinera's personal fortunes, because he has presided over an immensely turbulent period in Chilean politics, not least because of the democracy protests that were taking place from 2019 and then throughout the COVID pandemic as well. He then presided over a time when Chileans voted 80% in favour of creating a new constitution. And then in the subsequent constitutional convention elections, the right performed the worst they have ever performed in Chilean elections, meaning that they didn't even manage to get to the third of the members of that convention required to veto any constitution. And then to put things even worse for him, well, two more things, in fact, COVID-19 hit Chile incredibly poorly. It was one of the few countries that was actually competing with the UK in terms of its vaccination rate earlier this year, but then had to lock down in June despite having this high vaccination rate because of the rapid spread of coronavirus um, across the country, just as lots of other countries in the world were opening up. And then Piñera himself was named in the Pandora Papers, which we talked about when we were talking about the Czech Republic earlier this year. And it claimed that he took money in return for support for a for a unpopular mining investment project in an inv- environmentally sensitive area for which he was impeached by the chamber of deputies which was never successfully which never led to the removal of him from office because in the senate he fell five votes short of the required 29 to remove him from office but still to basically end your second term with an impeachment trial is not exactly how you would want to leave your legacy after a second term of president is it Chern? And what's even more remarkable is the fact that he will have the constitution set down by March. So the fact that the, the Chilean legislators still pushing ahead of it shows the depth of his unpopularity, isn't it? Because we know there's a new chief executive expected to come in, recome regardless of whatever happens. So that is, frankly, even more remarkable. You know, the, I, I think you've, you've stated Pinera's litany of policy problems as well, but there is a theme, I think, running through his two terms of this president, is the fact that he often appears, I think, too close to big businesses. And we've seen that most evidently in the Pandora Papers as well. And in the country, which, as we said, we briefly mentioned before, that is coming out of the Pinochet dictatorship, often viewing itself as one of the most, although well advanced economically, as very unequally distributed. It is a cocktail potentially for social unrest, as we saw as potentially one theme that linked his first presidency and the second presidency as well. This idea of lost social unrest, particularly as his term was winding down to a close. He also, according to his critics, both his terms failed to express significant empathy 
with many of his people, which I think worsened a lot of the political problems. And you could argue he's had a lot of bad luck, frankly. You know, he's had a 2010 Mali earthquake, another earth during his inauguration ceremony. I'm not sure what kind of you know, witchcraft could potentially think that one up. You know, if you remember the mining accident that of the 33 Chilean miners also happened during his term, a prison fire in 2010, a volcano eruption, wildfires, you know, the list just goes on, frankly. So it seems to be quite a turbulent time in Chilean political history. But Sam, the thing is, though, is that up to August 2021, though, his candidate, Sebastian Segal, was leading in the opinion polls. What could explain the last few months of turbulence in the polls as his fortunes went down? And that of a candidate we're going to talk about in a little minute, Jose Antonio Cat's fortunes have risen. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this, a lot of the um, disappointing set of poll results for Sebastian Sichel are actually inextricably linked to a lot of the problems we're talking about for Sebastian Piñera, because they are of the same party and Sichel has been in Piñera's administration. So they are closely linked as political allies. And I think the public views that too. I think a lot of people would think that the the collapse of the support of Podemos's candidate is linked to the left-wing wave that happened in the Constitutional Convention elections, where we saw, as I said just a bit ago, the worst performance for the right in Chilean politics in modern Chilean history. And we wondered if Sichel would actually be disadvantaged by that. But actually, I think it's also been that Jose Antonio Cast has been exposing a lot of problems of that brand of right wing of Chilean politics in government. So I think it, it didn't time very well with the summer that Chile had in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, because, as I said, the the lockdown after such extensive vaccination rates did not go down well at all um, because of the extent of inequality that, exi- that had existed prior to COVID as well. And then I think the expose of Piñera's financial activities has just been almost the final nail in the coffin for Podemos' reputation at at the polls. And even though Sebastian Sichel is a completely different person, I think it's very difficult to distance yourself from that when you come from the party who has provided that president. I will mention, I have an interesting... um theory about the Constitutional Convention elections. I'll talk a little bit later on when we discuss the right in general. But I think one thing that also cannot be underestimated is that as this Pandora Papers was dropping, if you recall, in August, another thing that happened is that Sebastian Chigal himself was caught up um, in some scandal himself. He was thought to receive contributions from large fishing corporations, which were thought to be irregular invoices. And it was, and the man in charge of that payment later was until he resigned, his campaign coordinator. And this came uh, after a weak performance in the presidential debate, which certainly did not help. And I think it just created an image in a lot of people's mind that he was inherently tied to the Chilean elite, despite his portrayals that um, he has. Not he has no ties and he was didn't and he was not a lobbyist in any way. And this was not only happened to the fishing sector; it also happened to the gas sector as well. You know, 
gas executives uh, were accused of donating, you know, just under $20,000 to US dollars to his campaign, Chilean $16.5 million to his campaign. I think it just proves a lot of people's mind, particularly when anti-establishment fever has been growing, it's been prevalent in Chile for the last few years, that Sebastian Segal is frankly one of the same people despite his claims otherwise, and that I think really hurt his campaign. I think the other thing we've got to remember as well is that at least in recent Chilean history, it's not unusual for a political party to not defend the presidency in Chile because Sebastian Piñera's last term was led to the return of Michelle Bachelet. And prior to Piñera, Michelle Bachelet was holding the office just then as well. So it's not unusual for the party of the presidency to alternate. But as we keep reiterating when we started this episode, what is unusual is for neither of the main parties to progress to the second round, which is what has happened in this case. You say that, however, but if you take a look at before Michel Bachelet handed over Sebastian Pinera, the centre-left have been phenomenally successful in Chilean politics since the fall of the dictatorship. The new social pact, or its predecessor, uh, centre-left political coalitions consisting of socialists, Christian democrats, liberals and the parties for democracy actually held the presidency from the fall of the Pinochet dictatorship in 1989 all the way up to 2010, which is a remarkable form of nearly 30 years. This time around, they nominated Yasna Provis, who served as in a previous job president of the Chilean Senate and a former education minister under Michelle Bachelet. Nonetheless, though, she came at a record low, 11.6%, and fifth place in the presidential election. So if you thought the centre-right performed badly, the centre-left performed, frankly, even worse. And in the parliamentary elections, in the Chamber of Deputies, they finished with 37 seats, which is actually less votes, with only, and less votes, with only 17% shared the vote, than the more left-wing Alpredo Iguindad, which is a new upstart social movement, which, frankly, I think is icing of a poor performance of the centre-left. So Sam, in an era in which, as we often discuss how the centre-right politicians um, administration of Sebastian Pinera has had a litany of policy problems and political problems, why have they not benefited? I think it's really because the unrest we saw in Chile for the past couple of years and the subsequent um, constitutional debate meant that the traditional opposition in Chile, which Michelle Bachelet's old party represented and was represented in this election by the new Social Pact Coalition, had been replaced by a different opposition force. Because what is key, I think, about the parties that make up the new Social Pact is that a lot of these parties represent former presidencies that the protests were in part protesting against because Sebastian Piñera has only been president in this term since 2017 and between 2013 and 2017 which was the which was immediately before the unrest and protests it was actually Michelle Bachelet who was president and her party had a big showing in the chamber of deputies as well so i think my my personal thought is that a lot of the protests and unrest over rising inequality in chile were also aimed at the opposition as well, because they had presided over a lot of the economic policy in in the years preceding the protests. And I think whether you're a member of the Podemos coalition or the new social pact, you were you were all seen as responsible 
in part for the economic situation of Chile. And when the Aprebo Dignidad coalition made themselves available as an alternative, almost anti-establishment radical party, criticizing this economic policy, then it became even more problematic for the new social pact being lumped with Podemos as being responsible for the situation in Chile. I think that last point is particularly key. And I think the context of it is particularly as a fact that Michelle Bachelet, after her first term as president, left office with an 84% approval rating, the highest in Chilean history. And she had, when she decided to run again, she went to hit UN women in between Sebastian Pinera's first term. When she came back, she promised this was in the era in which so you could argue was the birth of the Chilean social, this recent Chilean social movement, which was student protests from 2011 to 2013. And in response to that, one of Bachelet's main campaign promises in that election was the introduction of free university education and the end of profit-making educational institutions. And because she had, she had built up such a goodwill amongst the majority of the population in the first time around, she was able to coast to the presidency in a landslide victory in 2013. And I think part of the center-left, uh, why a lot of votes in this election did not go back to the center-left is because her, the signature promise she ran on turned out to be a disappointment to many of the core protest groups. In the end, the version of the bill that was passed only got only covered the poor free educate higher education only covered the poorest 60% of students, which is not the introduction of free university education. So it was seen as a compromise. And in addition, as well, there was a lot of middle class voters who thought that yes, you have increased access to university, but whether you've increased the quality of university education is a completely different matter. So I think overall there was um, a lot of disappointment with the Michelle Bachelet's second administration. And coupled by the fact that a woman who was seen particularly in the first term as a very effective administrator and one that was untainted by corruption was soon caught up in the corruption scandal involving members of her own family. And therefore that contributed to a, a, a approval rating in August 2016 of 15%, which up till Sebastian Pinera Mark II was one of the lowest of any president since the return of free elections in 1990. So I think therefore, given that background, it made it very difficult for a lot of voters angry with the centre-right to go and back the centre-left once again. I think it probably also didn't help that the presidential candidate of Aprebo Dignidad, Gabriel Boric, used to lead one of those student movements. So his ability to articulate the left-wing discontent with Michelle Bachelet and her party, and consequently the new social pact, was really high. So I think almost Gabriel Boric was one of those opponents that was immensely difficult for the new social pact to actually deal with on in terms of the competition on the left of Chilean politics. Well, the mainstream parties, whatever their legacies, would just have to observe the second round from the sidelines because neither of them will be supplying candidates in it. And uh, they will have to do a lot of reflection, a lot of wound licking if they ever were to again suspect regain the presidency in four years' time. So, welcome back to Ballot to Talk About and our second half of our dive into Chilean politics. So I thought now, Chern, we would turn to the parties that are 
supplying the two presidential candidates in the runoff in December, which is the Christian Social Front and Aprebo Dignidad, both of whom we have mentioned so far in this episode. So if we start with the Christian Social Front um, churn, because their candidate, Jose Antonio Cast, actually topped the polls um, last week in the first round of the presidential election, gaining 28% of the vote. The coalition of two right-wing to far-right parties, the Republican Party and Christian Conservative Party, was only formed this August. So going into this election, the party's not even six months old. And yet, as I said, it topped the presidential election and won 15 seats in the Chamber of Deputies with 11% of the vote. And whilst it only won one seat in the Senate, it's sure to be a big political contender in December when it goes up against um, Gabrielle Boric for the presidency. So, Chern, if we're looking ahead to December 1st, before we dive into um, Cast's political history, there was another centre-right populist candidate in Franco Parisi, who came third, surprisingly, in this presidential election with 13% of the vote. If we're looking ahead to the upcoming second round, do we expect that 13% to go naturally to Cast? And if that is true, do we therefore expect that Cast is the better positioned candidate going into this election, given the performance of the others? Uh, yes and yes. I think the thing we're going to talk about both candidates have to do is they both have to moderate their relative positions. The far left candidate, Gabriel Bori, has to moderate his politics to appeal to the economic policies to appeal to the centre ground. And I think Jose Antonio Cass has to moderate a lot of his social policies to appeal to the, the centre of uh, Chilean voters. And I think the presence of Franco Parisi, which was polling quite well in the opinion polls, does bode well as well because I think they share a lot of similar traits, potentially not as extreme as Antonio Cas, and one, and he didn't run a campaign explicitly on illegal migrants as Jose Antonio Cas did, but both do share similar center-right economic policies. And I think the fact that the voters seem to have gone to him does suggest potentially, rather than the center-right candidate, does suggest that you know, these are anti-establishment voters, which Cass, I think, will naturally appeal to. They potentially, given the preflow of options in the first round, were more able to express their unwillingness. But given the fact that this far-right candidate is going against a far-left candidate, I think it's the devil you, you slightly prefer rather than the person you absolutely hate. So, and I think, therefore, it makes these voters much more likely to move to Cass. Don't you agree? I mean, I think you're absolutely right about what they're needing to do in this election in terms of moderate. And I think the victory speeches of Boric and Cast show um, that Cast is at least at first out of the blocks in terms of that moderation, because Boric's speech was very aimed at his left wing base, saying that they need to um, energize the left wing going into the runoff election whereas Cast was projecting more of a more of a populist tone, but definitely trying to appeal to the centre lane a lot more than Boric seems initially capable of doing. And I think you're absolutely right that whoever manages to appeal to that centre quickly and more effectively is going to win this contest. And if you neglect the centre, I just don't think the voter pool is there for you to win. 
And I think one more point as well is that you referenced a bit early on that May 2021 Constitution Convention election, and it was a phenomenal success, you said, for the left wings, and they have a veto-proof majority in it. And the, the circumstances of that was that the left wing in Chile finally had a chance to amend the constitution which has essentially governed Chile or the framework of Chile since 1980 during the Pinochet right-wing dictatorship. So therefore, they had a high motivation to vote. I think what happened this time round is that a lot of right-wing voters were horrified about the free hand almost given to the left in and drafting what essentially are the framework of a country's political laws, and therefore were much more motivated to turn up this time round. Therefore, in the second round, if your pool of voters were much more enthusiastic right-wing voters, they are much more likely to gravitate towards caste rather than Boric. And that's why Boric had to appeal to his left-wing base, because there clearly was that element that we saw in May 2021. But now, potentially, given that the stakes have narrowed to a far left, versus far-right contest, and therefore not one of political moderation, we could see turnout go higher, which has traditionally been quite abysmal since Chileans, Chile introduced voluntary voting in 2013. So I think it's poised to be a fascinating second round and slightly more unpredictable, but I do think that the nature of the vote breakdown does give an advantage to cast, shall we say. And do you agree with that? I think, I think you are absolutely right that Cast is probably better positioned in terms of the voting breakdown, but I will just cast your mind back to the Ecuadorian presidential election, which we talked about earlier this year, where we actually thought that in terms of ideological allegiances, that Andre Arauch was better positioned as a left-wing candidate to pick up those votes. And what happened? Guillermo Lasso, the centre-right investment banker, ended up winning that contest. So... I think if you look at some of the neighboring countries, especially in the region of South America, which we've talked about recently, the elections don't always go as you would nat naturally expect. And I think Pedro Castillo, who this week is potentially facing removal from office, it would also be a good case study of, of that taking place in South American politics as well. Yeah, though, I think there's one thing to say, because I do think we also saw the same thing in Chile, uh, sorry, in Peru as well, where Kiko Fujimori, you know, if you had looked at the list of parties below that finished third to war below that would decide the next presidential election, she would have been the clear favourite to defeat the left-wing Pedro Castillo. I think the big difference between both, and I do, and I do I concede it's a valid point, the big difference between Peru and Ecuador to Chile's example is the nature of the candidates. In the fact that Cass does, Jose Antonio Cass has virtually come on the political seat overnight. Yes, he ran in 2017. He only got 7% of the vote back then, but he was very much not in the conversation in 2017 and only in this election. Whereas in the last two, in both Peru and in Ecuador, you know, in Peru, Keiko Fujimori had ran for the presidency twice in a very prominent position, losing, coming a very close second twice and a party had controlled Congress. In the case of the Ecuador, yes, we, Lasso seemed to have come out of nowhere, but he was fighting against uh, the Rafael Correra or Rafael Correra's associates in those presidential elections as well. Whereas in this case, it is two completely new candidates in the fray. So I don't think the, co the comparison, whilst it's there, is as perfect comparison between these two countries. And because Cass is so new and he's not part of the centre-right coalition, they can't pin that donkey on him 
And I think that is a big advantage going to the second round. No, I think you are absolutely right. And I think that's what makes this second round particularly fascinating because it's not a contest between an incumbent or someone closely linked to the incumbent. It is, as you said, two complete political unknowns. The only evidence we have to go on, really, that links either of these parties to electoral success is what happened in the Constitutional Convention election. But I completely agree with your point that that election might actually work against the left in terms of this presidential election. But it does seem fascinating to me, and I'm sure casual observers of Chilean politics will struggle to put two and two together for this as well. But I mean, six months after they elected a clear left-wing majority to draft the new constitution that 80% of Chileans had decided was required, they gave a plurality of votes to the far right. So if that's not a startling political journey for Chile, I don't know what is. And what do you think overall has explained the rise of CAS? Because it's quite a phenomenal rise from 8% to potentially being the next the president of potentially South America's most advanced economy, isn't it? Well, one big feature of Jose Antonio Cast, which has been heavily reported in the media, is the revival of the appreciation of the Pinochet era in Chile. And that's really what set him apart from any recent previous presidential candidates and anyone else in this race. And it just does seem to me that, at least in the context of the level of inequality that exists today in Chile, that there is a lot of latent support for the Pinochet era, particularly the free market reforms that that era led to. I mean, it goes without saying that the Pinochet era in Chile was a, a, an appalling era for human rights atrocities um, in the country. But in terms of how people in Chile might have felt economically under the, the almost extreme free market reforms that were going on in Chile, you can kind of understand why there is potentially a latent yearning for that period or a perceived yearning for that period. Because one thing that a lot of far-right populist leaders have done in the past, and I think Donald Trump is a good case of this, not the best, um, Jair Bolsonaro is probably a better example of this, is that they feed off almost economic desperation that exists within the country and and pin it to a bygone era that never really created that feeling, but they can associate those two things because it just looks different. And if they can make people yearn for a different past that almost never existed in a lot of these cases, but they can make believe existed in that way, I think actually Antonio, Jose Antonio Cast has really benefited from reviving this feeling about the Pinochet era. I think one more thing as well is that the student protests that we saw and the wider government protests the last few years, which led to the birth of the far left, actually could prove to be its ultimate stopping point. Because I think what a lot of that did is that, particularly the violence that came out of it, was that it brought the fear that, or the, that the country was out of control. And you need a, uh, and a law and order potentially became a very important topic. And, and like, and rather fortunately, unfortunately for the far left, you know, Chileans have a recent example of authoritarian regime, which, you know, and it's often associated with control and law and order. And because 
um, Cass's, you know, he was a student advocate back then of the 1988 referendum, which essentially led to the end of Augusto Pinochet. You know, that really has ensured that not only on the economic side, but I do think law and order was enabled Chileans to associate um, the Pinochet regime potentially with much more rose-tintedly than they did potentially five to ten years ago as well. And from the left's point of view as well, some of the human rights accusations that undoubtedly dogged his term, sadly, you know, started to fade in the rearview mirror as the real-world problems and potentially the real-world solution or, you know, nostalgia overcame that and they haven't found an answer to that, unfortunately. So if we turn to potentially the other answer to that question, which is being provided by a Prebo Dignidad on the left of Chilean politics. What is it that makes this party completely different from Jose Antonio Cast's contribution to this second round? And to give you a bit more information about the, the far left party, they were formed in January 2021. So again, very new as well. And I think that appeal, the new appeal has certainly helped as well. I think it's very much a youth-led movement as well, given by the fact that Gabriel Boric is a 35-year-old lawmaker and student protest leader. He will probably be the youngest president in Chilean history. And it's very well in the legislative election. 37 seats, again, as you said, same as the center-left New Social Pact, and came second in the Chamber of Deputies as well. And their rise very much is, I think, linked to the broader ills of economic inequality. Some of it was entrenched, as you said, during the... Pinochet written constitution. And I think a lot of the disappointment with the centre-left is that they've opted for a very incremental approach to trying to solve some of the structural inequalities that exist within Chilean system. And I think that has over time built up this valve of frustration that really exploded during the first Pinera administration when you had essentially, you know, for want of a better term, a very similar right-wing billionaire who, you know, exposed some of the same order and that really exploded in the student protests in 2011-2013. You know, the recent student protests in, in government protests was over a transit fare increase, but that has lasted over two years, frankly. So I think overall, the main underlying theme is economic inequality and the centre-left's in a, you know, for want of a better term, not going as fast with their reforms and most often their reforms had to be a hard-won compromise. So I'll give you an example was that in the 2005 reform, which reduced the presidential term from six years to four years, that was a product of five years of negotiations. And I don't think the will is there for such drawn-out negotiation, which will result in such a compromise. So I think the demand for fast change amongst young people has led to the fast rise to the far left. I think that's a good explanation for some of the rise of the far left as well. And I think a lot of this, certainly in recent times, the rise of the far left can be traced back to the unrest that happened in the recent years leading up to the Chilean um, constitutional convention elections, which was really where we got the first electoral proof that the far left was certainly making a march in, um, in Chilean politics because... The, it was it was a probo dignitad and a host of more left wing independent candidates that absolutely stormed that constitutional convention election. I think it's also interesting to look at Gabriel Boric as a candidate because I think him as a candidate seems to have had a lot of power predating the success 
of the coalition he is going to represent in next year's runoff because he's been a member of the Chamber of Deputies since 2014. And in both 2014 and 2017, when he was re-elected, he, he won the highest number of votes in the Magellanus region both times as an independent candidate, which both of us know from covering elections all around the world that winning regions as an independent candidate without any party infrastructure backing at all is incredibly difficult because to build that kind of name recognition across an entire region is extremely difficult. And this also propelled him to win in the primary elections for a Prebo Dignidad, a, a real surprise victory over an incumbent mayor of Recoleta, which is one of the larger cities in Chile, um, Daniel Jardu, who was seen as the absolute front runner to be the presidential candidate for a Prebo Dignidad. And yet Gabriel Boric, a 35-year-old student activist, was able to um, dislodge him and then go on to win, go on to come second in the first round and then go on to go up against Cast in the second round and is potentially um, a month away from being the president. Indeed, and it's probably one of the most um, stoic rises. But I think, but of the two, Sam, which do you think is more likely to be more successful in moderating their policies, be economic or social, in appealing to the centre group? Because what we've already seen is that the centre-left has backed Gabriel Boric, unsurprisingly, and the centre-right has backed Katz, unsurprisingly, as well. Who do you think will be more successful in winning over their votes? Because there's still quite a, potential, quite a big pool potential of voters, isn't it? So I think, as we talked about a bit earlier, I do think Cast is probably better positioned to be able to do that because, well, two reasons. Gabriel Boric comes from a political tradition where moderation is not really built into the infrastructure of how that politics works because he's been a student activist against, um, against high income inequality and also against the rights of students in Chile and has been part of some quite demanding and lengthy and exhaustive political protests against the centre-right um, administration. Whereas Ant Jose Antonio Cast comes from a legal background which is all about rhetoric, which is all about choosing your words incredibly carefully, and I think that will, that will be a big strength of his in this political campaign in trying to appeal to a more moderate lane, whether he means to actually moderate his policies or not. I just think Jose Antonio Cast will be better positioned to present himself to moderates than Gabriel Boric might be able to do. There is time for that to change around, but it certainly seems that out of the gates, as I said, looking at their victory rallies even, it looks like Jose Antonio Cast has realised that sooner than Gabriel Boric has. Unless Gabriel Boric thinks that the latent support for the left that existed in the Constitutional Convention election is there to be capitalised on, um, which he might be right, but I really can't see a candidate winning this second round without appealing to the centre. And I think as well that the other thing as well is that he will, the problem Boric will face is that, and I think the left in general could potentially have to worry about this down the line and to a lesser extent cast as well, is the fact if Gabriel Boric becomes president, he will have to face a conservative Senate 
who will probably do utmost to try and thwart his agenda. So I think the, the issue for he has is not only in winning this presidential election, but both parties have a relatively narrow base in both the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate as well, which could potentially, for those worried about the, the policies to come of both men, could be seen as a handbrake on some of the more extreme elements of it. If we take the financial markets uh, as any guide about who will, will be more successful in moderating, appealing to those voters, it clearly is the centre, the far-right caste, who, because since the elections, you know, Chilean stocks, well, until yesterday, as we're recording this, has seen a huge increase in Chilean stocks, and the currency has strengthened as well. Because I think a lot of they view the fact that Boric's performance, or particularly the fact that the right got over 50% of the vote, as a good, you know, good marker for potentially their candidate doing a lot better in the second round. I mean, we don't necessarily have that long to wait, Chern, to find out whether the financial markets will get their way in this election um, because the runoff election takes place just before Christmas and in fact we'll be talking about it around Christmas time as well but we can't leave Chern without talking about um, our thoughts about how this election will go and I know we don't necessarily have the best reputation with these predictions but if you were to have to call this second round now where would you place your bets? I come back to a point I made earlier, is the fact that we often talk, the main difference between Chile and Peru and Ecuador is who the right wing, who the candidate is. And I think the fact that Cass has virtually no ties to the political establishment, unlike you know, Peru and, and Peru and Ecuador, where one candidate was tied to a longtime leader and there was a backlash against that, you can't really pin down both candidates. And given that as a result, I do give the advantage to Cass. Um, particularly as I think as well, he is much, he's, he has calculated that the route to getting the presidency, particularly when right-wing voters are much more motivated considering the stakes potentially they have at play here to, um, given the fact that the Constitutional Convention is mainly at left-wing, to come out and vote in the second round, the advantage will lie with Cass. And I think the, th the other thing to say as well is that Chilean elections tend to be played with poor turnout. The last two elections, in fact, this election saw less than half of the registered voters come out. And we know, Sam, that low turnout elections tend to favor older voters who have that much more natural connection to potentially some of the economic legacy that and gains that they, they had under Augusto Pinochet. And finally, a candidate has come along that has much more closely aligned himself with the law and order, the, the peace, economic peace, certainly, that that regime brought. And I think that all those things stacks up to me as advantage cast. Do you agree with that? I do. Um, and I also I also think that Jose Antonio Cast is the more likely winner of this contest, even as we talked about extensively, just numerically, because um, it does seem that the voter pool from the first round on in the majority leans more towards the right than towards the left. And if Jose Antonio Cast can successfully position himself slightly more towards the centre than his original campaign, then I really think the election is his to lose in many ways. The only thing that, thing that I think could upset this is if the energy that was generated around May's constitutional convention election re-emerges in opposition to a potential far-right leader of the country. I don't necessarily think there's enough time 
for that to really take light. But if anything comes up in any debates or any press releases or any investigations that really pins far-right politics on Jose Antonio Cast in a big way in the next month, then potentially the tides could change. But I do think that barring any huge surprise or any huge new revelation, I think Jose Antonio Cast is definitely better positioned to win this, um, given the performance of other candidates around him in the first round. Yeah, and I think as well something to I think it's a symbolic thing, but it's something that shows he's better playing the political game. Is that he's symbolically resigned as head of his Republican Party, actually the Chilean Republican Party, and is therefore standing as independent, actually. And so therefore, I think not tied to a far right party. Although whether his policies would come out, I think that would still be the case. But it still nonetheless suggests to me that he knows what has to be done, and this symbolic way does show that he knows the direction he has to head to, isn't it? But I suspect, Sam, we'll be back in a month's time discussing what whoever the next president is, which could potentially, Sam, if you not agree, take Chile in a very different direction, isn't it? Yes, well, certainly. And uh, I look forward to that probably being our last election of 2021. And on that note, actually, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Join us again next week when we'll be reviewing the year that was 2021. And it did provide lots of surprises, disappointments and lots of things to talk about. And we will also continue to bring up the date at the world of politics and elections around the world, even as Christmas comes to comes around the corner. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Bella underscore Talk. And do leave us a rating or review, or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han, and until next time, we will speak to you soon. <laughs>